Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to Monsters Who Murder. The serial killer whisperer is in her chair standing by to share her wisdom. Hello, Amanda (laughs) Howard. Hello, Rob McKnight. It's good to be here yet again. I've been uh, drowning in BTK stuff for a couple of weeks now and there's plenty more to come. But um, it's, it's been an amazing journey, this one. Would you like to rephrase that? Why? Drowning in BTK. <laughs> well, it feels like, um, believe me, I've had to I put my head up for uh, for breath a few times because it has been quite dark. This mm. is um, this is a expose or an analysis, whatever you like to call this podcast, of a serial killer that um, makes me angry, who fascinates me, who um, last night when I was working on the next episode, I almost threw my computer across the room because he was just so vile and revolting. Um, yeah, he's bringing out everything thing in me this one so it's just fascinating well we can't wait to discover what you've discovered as we get through the episode so um it really is interesting i'm finding it fascinating hearing him in court the way he has no care factor for the victims Mm -hmm. um it's just really interesting the journey we go on with him but that's coming up a little later on this edition of monsters who murder serial killer confessions in the meantime let's get into the news and after his wife left him a suspected hyderabad serial killer in india decided to take his revenge out on all women Stone Carter Maina Ramalu had murdered at least 18 female victims before being arrested in a killing spree that lasted 18 years. Shockingly, the accused man was released on bail and killed another two victims before he was rearrested last week. Amanda, a man kills 18 people and gets bail. Sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, you just sort of read this, I'm thinking, okay, so I've got a new serial killer, I, I go and add him to my my big uh, my big uh, spreadsheet I've got, and then I realise that it's not 18 victims, it's actually 20 victims because they let him out to kill again. I mean, don't they sort of use a bit of logic and realise that if this man has been killing non-stop for 18 years, that letting him out is not a good idea? I mean, I know that our system is meant to be innocent until proven guilty, but, I mean, they suspect Yeah, but if you're charged murders. with something like this, it's a hell of a risk to let them out. Yeah, and they just did. They, you know, he, he's been killing for eighteen years um, since he was twenty-one, and you know, it's just, just um, I don't know. This was one I went. You're kidding me, right? <laughs> you know, I went well, straight into me, that. Tell me a bit about this guy. What technique does he use? Anything he, he can use. He shot a few. He stabbed a few. Strangled a few. It was 
anything he could do. It was people who looked like his wife because his wife had left him for a, another man and this was an arranged marriage and he was there for the for the lifetime and all of that. And then suddenly um, she sort of ups and leaves quite early in their marriage. And, and I mean, this is a different culture, so I know things change and, and things are different to what we're used to, but he saw this as great shame. So he, he decided that he was just going to take it out on any woman he, he came across that he believed looked like his wife. Did he take it out on the wife or is she still alive? No, she's still alive. So um, where she is, I hope that she is in hiding considering he was let out again. But um, obviously he had no intent on killing her unless she was meant to be his last victim. And I guess he what would have done that last week when he was um, let out on bail, but he, he hasn't killed her. So she's she's still free, but all 20 others now have um, have lost their lives because of his revenge. Well, I hope the people in charge take notice because this kind of thing is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's move on. A wanted serial killer in Germany, Austria and France had baffled police for 16 years before investigators came to a shocking conclusion in 2009. DNA from dozens of crime scenes connected the dots and all pointed to a female killer who had murdered several people and had also been involved in a stack of robberies and other criminal offences. The serial killer was dubbed the woman without a face or the phantom of Heilbronn before the shocking conclusion was realised. The final clue came after a refugee's burnt body was also covered in the killer's DNA, even though there was no way a serial killer could have been involved in the case. It was then, after offering a $300,000 reward for her capture, the police discovered their embarrassing mistake. An employee at a medical evidence supply factory was inadvertently contaminating the evidence swabs she was making with her own DNA. Oh, Amanda, for all of our medical advances, it only takes one person to stuff it up. And it takes police 16 years to work it out. I mean, this is fantastic. I had to include this. This is not new news, but it was um, in IFL Science um, website just the other day and I had such a little giggling fit. I mean, we're still talking about dead bodies and there's still people who need to be arrested for these crimes, but because it's all contaminated, it has to go on other evidence. So it's just amazing. I was reading through, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't know this person. Why isn't she on my list? Why haven't I, you know, (laughs) been researching her? She's been given a, a name in the press and all this sort of stuff. And then I kept reading and I thought, oh, bless her. So she was obviously probably licking her finger and sort of, you know, flicking through evidence envelopes or something like that, um, accidentally putting her DNA over everything that she touched. Isn't this basic stuff? Like you're dealing with DNA evidence. Don't put your DNA evidence <laughs> on yeah, the samples. but you know that supply chains, they usually aren't in the most uh, cleanest of areas and, you know, mm. when they can pay someone a dollar a day to make this sort of stuff, they do do that. So That is a um, problem though. This is a big problem. So, but it gave me a giggle, and so I thought it would give everyone a giggle too. That um, the woman without a face uh, was just a factory worker who was licking envelopes. So. Jeez. <laughs> All right. 
Look, let's move on because we also have breaking news on a case we have covered on this podcast, that of Terry Russerman. While his victims found in the barrels at Bear Brook State Park are still to be identified, police have announced that genealogy testing has shown a family tree for some of the victims. It turns out they are relatives of people who lived in Pearl River County in Mississippi in the late 19th century. Further testing and genealogy matching is being undertaken and there are hopes these victims will have names in the near future. Now, Amanda, we just spoke about a massive DNA stuff-up, but here we see DNA used right and put to good use. Yeah, so this is great. So um, though two of the victims have been identified, one has been identified as a direct descendant of Terry Rasmussen, like she's his daughter, and uh, the woman found in one of the barrels is believed to be another identified victim but there's two others that don't link to him or the other woman in the barrels but they've actually found because what what genealogy dna does it actually goes back to a sort of a, a broader spectrum of of dna matches and then they sort of go down go down go down go down the family tree and as they do that they actually get a closer match so you know like that they go from um five matches in the alleles then they get six then they get seven then they get eight and so they do this until they get the full 23 or as close to um because you obviously get some from your mother and some from your father so they're actually doing this and they've found where the family tree comes from in mississippi so now they're actually going down this family tree and as we know as a family tree goes down it spreads out further and further and further so they have to try each branch until they actually find the branch that they need to follow and then it gets closer and so it sort of narrows as it widens so it's it's actually Mm. quite interesting how they do this absolutely fascinating so um we're going to have identities for the other two victims in the barrels very soon i think so it's Within the year, we will know who all four of them are. So it's absolutely amazing. No, that's good news. That's good news for the families that have missing family members and want to know their fate. So um, very, very good progress. Hey, look, our Patreon page has got a few little surprises at the moment, including bonus material for those on the $10 plus. Just last week, we uploaded an episode called The Top 10 Fictional Serial Killers, where Amanda gave us her top 10 list on those serial killers from TV and movies. And it wasn't the kind of list you'd expect, Amanda. No, um, Hannibal Lecter is not there and nor is Dexter. So, I mean, people have that sort of standard top 10 list. This is my top 10 of uh, fictional killers that um, may have sort of slipped under the radar for some people and may encourage others to go and watch TV shows or watch a couple of films. Um, but, yeah, especially my, my number one here is just an amazing character and so I really hope that you all listen to that. And while Dexter and while Dexter wasn't on your list, he certainly made an appearance as we went on a tangent having a discussion about what should have happened in that series. <laughs> And Judge Rob gave his verdict on where the script writers and showrunners went wrong. Uh, (laughs) um, But also what we're doing on our Patreon page is you will get a 10% discount if you take out an annual subscription. This will entitle you to 12 months worth of content at a discounted price. It really is worth taking it. We're putting bonus episodes up for anyone on the $10 plus tier. You get your group video calls for $20 and your one-on-one video calls for $50. Those on the $5 tier get brand new episodes a week earlier than everyone else. So there's a range of bonuses depending on your budget. All right, we'll be back in a moment with BTK Part 2. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Shocking celebrity secrets. Justin Bieber's word against mine. Backstage drama. All of a sudden, Dolly Parton walks into the room. And controversial opinions. I'm not saying she's been approached. I'm saying this is what I'm hearing is the crunching options. TV Black Box, the podcast where people who've worked in the TV industry spill their juiciest stories. Julie used to like to drink on set. TV Black Box, available in your favourite podcast feed. Now to our psychological profile on the BTK. Let's go over the details of the case. Dennis Rader, known as BTK, a moniker he gave himself in correspondence with police, BTK, standing for Bind, Torture, Kill, was responsible for the deaths of 10 known victims. His first known killing was the death of four of the Oterio family, which we went through last week as well as the murders of six other female victims. The murders occurred between 1974 and 1991. With no further leads in the case, it was considered cold in 2004. And this was to be the catalyst for Radar to start writing to police and the media again. And it was this correspondence that would lead him to foolishly identifying himself through evidence he sent to the police. Radar was charged with the 10 murders in March 2005 and in June he pleaded guilty to all 10 murders and in court described the murders in detail. And this is where we start the case. Amanda, remind me of the courtroom scene. Okay, so we have Radar in the middle of the screen. Um, He's sort of taking up most of the camera. There are others behind him and there is a lawyer on each side of him, a male and a female. Um, And Radar is wearing a cream linen jacket, a white shirt and tie. He's wearing his glasses. He has a a goatee, which is otherwise quite clean shaven and his goatee I've never seen a goatee so thick he he doesn't have any gaps in it but but that's just something different I watch that a lot whilst he's, he's talking um but beside him yeah the, the others are sort of out of of focus mostly um though we do see the lawyers sort of lean in and whisper things to him every so often and every time the sort of the judge asks a sort of lengthy question we actually get a shot of the judge from the other side of the room so um Raider actually has to sort of turn to his left to, to talk to the judge so they sort of face the jury box rather than the judge. So it's quite interesting compared to what we see on TV and things like that. So he's standing for this entire thing. It goes for 45 minutes and we're, I think we're at about the 10-minute mark so far because there's so much to unpack. But, um, yeah, so so that's the scene. We're in court and he's just going to go through his notes and, and sort of describe everything that went on. Yeah, and in this section today there is a lot to unpack all the way through what we're hearing today. So it's really, really interesting. Look, in the last episode, we went through the murders of the Otero family, and now he's asked about the fifth murder, that of 21-year-old Catherine Bright and the attack on her 19-year-old brother Kevin in April 1974. This occurred almost four months after the Otero murders. Look, there's a little bit of legal toing and froing once again before he's prepared to answer with his lawyer whispering in his ear. All right, Mr. Raider, we will now turn to count five. In that count, it is claimed that on or about the fourth day of April, 1974, in Sedgwick County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed 
Catherine Bright, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation and stabbing, inflicting injuries from which she did die on April 4th, 1974. Can you tell me what occurred on that day? Uh, the, uh, I don't know how to exactly say that. I had many, what I called them projects. They were different people in the town that I followed, watched. Uh, Kathleen Bright was one of the next targets, I guess, as I would indicate. How did you select her? Uh, just driving by one day, and I saw her go in the house with somebody else, and I thought that's a possibility. There was many, many places in the area. Um, College Hill, they're all over Wichita, but anyway, that's, it just was basically a selection process, work toward it. If it didn't work, I'd just move on to something else. But in the, in the, my kind of person, it's stalking and scrolling. You go through the trolling stage and then a stalking stage. She was in the stalking stage when this happened. Hmm. Not much is said there, but there is a lot of detail. Oh, there is. Um, so Raid is actually talking about um, the sexual serial killer process, so and he will actually go in, into it further in our next episode. Um, you know, there are some killers that actually sort of take someone by opportunity, but Raider actually does his homework. And um, I think particularly after the Otero case where the father was home and the son was home and he sort of didn't expect them to be there and he just wanted the females, um, he had sort of... Uh, chosen Catherine purely because she caught his eye and then he began stalking her. So um, he had seen her in, into the house, you know, and, and that was it. That's all it took. You know, it's quite terrifying. You know, it's not like he sort of seen her in provocative clothing or, you know, she mm. was on TV or anything like this. She walked into her house. That's all it took. You know, but he's actually watching multiple people. So he would actually drive past their homes and he would masturbate and he would sort of have these fantasies about them and what he was going to do to them. You know, he would uh, go and watch their homes at night time. I mean, he, he has a family at home himself and here he is going out and stalking these other people and just making sure, you know, he would like to see them at night purely because he could see the lights on so he could see how the house is set out. He can work out, you know, points of entry, uh, where the phone line meets the house, who they live with, what are the risks, you know, and and this is why the Otero case was so hard for him is because he wasn't expecting Joseph Senior to be home. He'd been watching them for quite a while, but then uh, Joseph Senior had had a car accident just a few days before, so he was home because they had to share a car and so they were doing things a bit differently and he didn't realise that. So he was sort of making sure what was happening here was going to happen. You know, he's even checking to see if she had a dog because of what happened last time you know and this is all part of that next stage he he trolls around and he, he looks for people um and the word troll i'll use because he uses it later and we actually confirm what he means by that term but um mm-hmm. you know he's he's just sort of picking victims and then he goes to that next stage of the actual stalking and the fantasy so all she had to do was walk inside her house and that was enough to set him off it's interesting you talked about his sexual arousal just from the stalking I would have thought the sexual arousal would come from the killing or what he did after the killing, but you're saying he was sexually aroused just watching people. Well, I mean, just think of it this way. As a child, Christmas Eve, how excited you get about tomorrow's Christmas Day. Right. It's that sort of excitement. This is what I'm going to do to her. Because the reality of crime, and we're going to see this in, in his case, is messy and people don't comply and they do what they need to to survive mm. and all of this. But the fantasy is that he walks in and basically romances them. And he, he does this, you know, I'm, I'm a kindly 
guy who got Joseph Otero a cushion to put under his bad back. You know, he he has this romanticised version of what's going on and part of that is his his sexual excitement. So, yeah, it's a kid on Christmas Eve, all of these stalkings. Okay, well, next he explains the first part of that horrifying day. All right, sir, so you identified Catherine Bright as a potential victim. Yes, sir. What did you do here in Sedgwick County then? Pardon? What did you do then here in Sedgwick County? Uh, on this particular day, yes. uh, I broke into the house and waited for her to come home. How did you break into the house? Uh, through the back door on the east side. Now, this is interesting, Amanda. You've already spotted something. We only <laughs> played a 23-second clip there. <laughs> What did you spot? Okay, so we're already seeing him creating a signature because he's now broken into two homes, both by the back doors. So this becomes his common this becomes his common breaking in point. Uh, but this is now part of his. Why do we call pattern. that a signature and not just a tactic? Like um, I would have thought a signature is like he kills someone a certain way or leaves an X over their belly button. I don't know. I'm trying to, yeah. you know. But you're saying it's referred to as a signature just because of the way he enters the house as well. Um, there's all these aspects. So he ties their knees together. He ties their ankles together. All of this creates a... a um, a version of what this person does. It's like writing, you know, your your favourite music tunes in Spotify or something. It's about creating those steps mm-hmm. in your case and that's what makes you you and that's how they can get them because he breaks in by, by the back door, he cuts the phone lines, he ties them all up, he attacks the women more than the men, he doesn't use other instruments. I mean, yes, we had a gun in the previous case and we're going to have a gun and knives in this one. But there's certain aspects that don't change and he knows that breaking into the house via the back door, he's not the only person that does that. Yes, there are thousands of, of break-ins probably last night across the world. There's probably even millions. They all broke in through the back door because that's usually the best point of egress because people aren't watching you from the street and stuff like that. But this becomes part of what he does. So he knows that this is the best point to come through. So it becomes part of the pattern so they know then that okay we can link them because they've they're tied up they're killed in a certain way and he's coming in through the back door after cutting these um the telephone lines it's not unique it's not saying that you know every every person's signature is is unique this sort of it's put it's a plus b plus c plus d plus e and that creates the entire signature it's not just this one aspect but this one aspect shows them okay we can link this to the other one because he's done all of these same things over and over again because people do a change and killers do change. They evolve and they change things and he might learn that climbing in through a window is better. I mean, Richard Ramirez did that. If there was a window open, that's how he would choose his house. Um, others like Richard Chase would actually knock on the front door and if you answered, he would go in. So there's all different things but it's part of, of that pattern that they see and it becomes their signature because it works and so they that they retain these small parts of the actual crime from where to go that they actually then can show that this is what they've done. If he couldn't get in the back door because it was locked, he would go through the front door but there would still be the other aspects of the signature that he would continue to do. Right, okay. Well, talking about his signature, he then continues in the same ruse. All right, and you waited for her to come home. Where yes, did sir. you wait? Uh, in the house there, probably close to the bedroom. I walked to the house and uh, kind of figured out where I'd be if they came through. All right. What happened then? Uh, she and uh, Kevin uh, Bright came in. I uh, wasn't expecting him to be there. Uh, and come find out, I guess, they were related. Uh, that time I... Uh, 
approached him and told him I was wanted in California, uh, needed some car, basically the same thing that I told the attorneys. So the same story. Yeah, so he knows that that works. He knows that by saying that he's a wanted man, he just needs to get some some cash and a car and out. He knew that that worked. So that's now part of his signature. Of course, he usually leaves a no person alive, so we can't corroborate that. We can't claim that, yes, this is exactly what he said. He, he could have gone in and said, F you, I'm, I'm, I'm here to kill and rape you and do horrible things to you. We don't know. But this is his side of the story. We have to remember that too, you know. But, but it, I t- seem to take it at face value. Because he seems to want to get his story out. As a witness, he could literally just sit there and say nothing. But he certainly wants his story out. You're looking at me funny. (laughs) Yeah, because you don't believe a single thing a serial killer says. He's making himself to be like that he has just calmly walked in and these people go, oh, hi, why are you in my house? Are you okay? Would you like a cup of coffee? He would have been attacking them. He would have been. They would have been, you know, and so for him to say, oh, I just walked in the house and they come in and I said, hi, I'm a wanted man. I just need your car and and your purse and I'm out of here. I I get that. And there's no doubt we're talking about a chaotic situation where he's taking full control. But when there are details about what he tells them as a way of calming them down, I don't see any reason to disbelieve that. Like... Because if if you were a victim and this guy has come into your house and the whole family is freaking out, the first instinct from a parent is to make sure their family is okay, yep. right? The kids and, from a man's point of view, the wife. Yep. And if this guy says, I just need money, I'm on the run, I've, I've got no interest in you guys, I just want money and I want to get out of here, you'd say, okay, take the money, you know, like whatever. And there would be a sense of relief that this is just about money. Okay, but here I am and I've got a gun and I've got ropes as well. So just, I'm not saying you wouldn't there. be scared shitless. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. But he's, he's making it sound so calm and that he's just sort of, oh, hi, hello, and I'm here and how are you going? Um, yes, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee. And this this will this will be elaborated on in the next murder as well. But he's just sort of mm. just he's playing it down. He's, he is not playing up all of the stuff and that he does, that oh, sure. he would have said yeah. horrible things to him, you know. Um, he's he's quite clever but not as clever as I thought he actually was, um, you know, and for him to actually use this kind of ruse, like um, Joseph Otero was a military man. So he could have, you know, that there is two men that have, have been in basic training at least, um, you know, he knows that this has worked and this is the way to calm them down, but it's not as calm as he's making it out to be, you know, and he's going to actually muck up because, you know, Kevin's actually there. He had been watching this woman closely but really hadn't because Kevin actually lives there. So, you know, he, he keeps claiming that he's not expecting um, additional people to be there, but Kevin was there. And so it's quite interesting that he just says, oh, you know, I just, you know, they just sort of come home and I said, I'm a wanted man, I want your purse. And, and your keys, you know, mm. it's not as basic as he's trying to make out. He's trying to make it um, humane and it, and it wasn't. Oh, sure. Yeah, I hear you. All right. Well, in this next clip, he actually has trouble remembering the story. Uh, kind of ease him, make him feel better and proceeded to, I think I had him tie, I think I had him tie her up first 
and then I tied him up or vice versa. I don't remember right now. now let, let me ask, you indicated that you had some uh, items to tie these people with. Did you bring these items, both the Oteros and for this location? The Oteros I did. Uh, I'm not really sure on the Brights. Uh, there was some, I, when I had working with the police, there was some controversy on that. Probably more likely I did, but uh, if if I had brought my stuff and used my stuff, uh, Kevin would probably be dead today. Right. I'm not bragging on that. It's just a matter of fact. It's the bonds I broke, uh, tied him up with that he broke himself. And, that, uh, All right. and maybe the same way with uh, same with Catherine. It was I got out of got out of hand. So he has a real lack of emotion there. Yeah, he's actually sounds a bit disappointed, you know, that this is a failure and it's actually now on show. So he wants the bravado. He, he wants to be, mm. you know, that uncaught serial killer that everyone's terrified of. Now he's a middle-aged man who is telling a story that he's almost embarrassed to say. You know, he's, he's not scary now. He wants so why to is be... he telling us then? Uh, because it took death penalty off the table and it sort of got things ah. done quickly and he didn't, like, this destroyed his, his wife and daughters, absolutely destroyed their lives and he sort of, of wanted course. this over it and done with um, because basically they're his victims as well and we have to remember that, mm. you know. But he's being shown as quite pathetic, you know, and he's saying, oh, if I had bought my stuff with me, he'd have been dead, you know, I'm not being brave but he is he didn't need to add that in he didn't need to say that and in the next case he actually talks about that he did bring the stuff with him so I mean you have to wonder what's truth and what's not but you know he just sort of knows that now he's stuffed up twice there's been a male in the home both times that this is what he will change next time you know he knows how to get better so again he goes over the tying up or should we say binding yes you know we were talking about his moniker um, so let's hear him talk about that aspect. All right. Now you indicated that you believe you had Kevin Ty Catherine up. Mm-hmm. Tell me what happened then. Okay. I moved, uh, well, after, I really can't remember, Judge, whether I had her tie him up or she tied him up. But anyway, I moved, uh, basically I moved her to another bedroom and he was already secure there by the bed. Uh, tied his feet to the uh, bedpost, the bottom bedpost, so he couldn't run. Uh, kind of tied her in the other bedroom, and then I came back to strangle him. And at that time, we had a fight. Now, the tying up or binding is really important to him, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, after he killed the Otero family, he actually left a confession in a book at a library that someone found and it was um, signed BTK and it's done so that the B is actually on, on its side so it looks like boobs and he's put in nipples and things like that. It's, it's, a, it's a bit pathetic actually. Um, but Sounds like a 12-year-old. Well, yeah, I mean, he... Well, we're talking 30-odd years ago, so he was in his early 20s, so, yeah, around that. But he was an autoeroticist and he loved bondage, so this was part of his fantasy. So this is what he wanted to do. Um, you know, the people were all tied up in in the same way. He did it certain ways. He would always start at the ankles and move up. You know, he actually took photos of himself in women's clothing and wearing a mask of makeup, um, pretending to be a victim. Like He actually took photographs of himself lying in an open grave, 
bound like he did his victims, you know. And so oh. he, he would have um, fantasised that Catherine would have been excited by this. You know, he didn't want her to be scared. He didn't want her to fight. He wanted her to sort of um, succumb to this and just have this romantic fantasy like he did. And he doesn't realise that these are scared people who will do what they can to survive. Mm. Um, and so he knows that the binding, it's its more of a sexual factor than it is to control the people, but obviously it, it, it controls them as well. Well, then he discusses going back to the room where he has left Kevin tied up. Were you armed with a handgun at that time? Also? Yes, I had a handgun. <laughs> Whoa, that was pretty emphatic. <laughs> yes, yep. I had a handgun. Yep, yep. It's just, you know, he, he's trying to make himself being all, almighty and powerful, you know. So the judge didn't even get the words out before he's got, yeah, no, of no. course I've got a gun. You know, I'm in, in control. Kevin was no match for me. You know, I'm I'm the boss here, you know. And so the, um, the judge is trying to work out did they not fight back because it was their, um, their survival choice you know because you can mm. fight or flight um and you know he's saying well of course i got a gun so of course no one's go- going to fight me but that's not sort of part of his signature but he, he seems to have a gun with him now we know your dark humor <laughs> so you found this next bit slightly humorous let's find out why what happened when i came actually back? had two handguns <laughs> <laughs> um what do you like about this? I mean, you, you, we talked about him being emphatic about having a gun, but the way he answers that part, it really tickled your fancy. Yes. Yeah, so, so the judge says, you know, oh, dad, you have a gun with you? He goes, yeah, I had a gun, of course. And then he goes, actually, I had two guns, you know, like, you know, I, I have two blacker dogs. You know, it's this one upmanship. He's trying to be powerful. He's not trying to be the middle-aged man who's standing in court and shorter than everyone else. You know, this is toxic masculinity at its absolute peak. This is this is him saying, you know, I, I have two guns, so I'm, I'm the biggest sheriff in town it's just it's quite right. uh, it's quite pathetic that he actually sort of corrects himself by not not only saying that he had a gun because he spat that out very quickly you know when the judge is like did you have a gun with you yes of course i had a gun well actually two guns you know like it's just sort of that i mean we can go into um you know gender theory and we can talk about guns being penises and all this sort of stuff but we'll keep that to the side because i'm not back at uni just yet and i don't want to have that discussion but this is about him being you know that toxic masculine man who just sort of has to do everything and having two guns is better than having one gun all right he then continues the narrative about kevin bright uh, well, I started strangling. The, either the uh, parent broke or he broke his bonds and he jumped up real quick like. I pulled my gun and quickly shot him. I hit him in the head. He fell over. Uh, I could see the blood. And as far as I concerned, he, you know, I thought he was down. Down. There's that word again. He's saying down. He really doesn't like saying dead. No, because it's about minimising the harm. So, you know, he's glossing over it. You know, he's saying, oh, he broke free and made chase and I shot him, you know, rather than him sort of chasing after him and uh, crash-tackling him to the floor and everything. He, it's, it's something that's important is what he doesn't say, you know, but we will get to that a bit further. But he likes to say down mm. um, more so because I think that, he expects this person to be dead, but he knows that they aren't. So he says down, but, you know, he goes, oh, I shot him in the head. You know, again, he sort of makes that that point, you know, I'm, I had a good shot. Yeah. 
Well, let's go back to his confession because, as you said, he believes he has killed Kevin. So he turns his attention to Catherine in the other room. And uh, was out and then went and uh, started to strangle uh, Catherine. Why does he stutter over her name? In the video, he actually looks down at a piece of paper in front of him. Has he really forgotten or is he trying to screw over the families by making out that she's not important to him? Well, this is something that has has become a focus in true crime over the years, that the victims need their names and not the killers. Um, You know, we saw that come to a peak with uh, the Christchurch shooting that we actually don't refer to him by name, but we do talk about where he went and things like that. Um, But it is a bit of a a screw you because he didn't care about their names. They were just players that they had bit parts. He is the almighty powerful person who has control over who lives and who dies. He actually talks about um, stories other people and purely the night that he goes to kill them they're not home you know he just sort of he's in charge and he's trying to make it look like that he's in charge he's the star here and everyone he knows is watching I mean the video that we're actually using from the BTK site has over four million views so lots of people have watched this and we are breaking it down to like sentences here you know but it's about him being the star he is saying screw you because he knows exactly their names because he's gone through this over the last couple of weeks with his confession between March and June when he does this they have written this down word for word they know the story inside and out he knows the story inside and out he knows their address and everything but he doesn't use them and in fact in the next case um i wish i hadn't done it last night because it's still fresh in my mind <laughs> he he can tell them the exact location he parks his car but he has to sort of keep referring to their names it's a screw but you this makes sense to me because it's not about the victims no. for him it's about that kill it could be anyone it could be person A, it could be person yep. B. He doesn't really care. He's looking for opportunity. Yep. He's looking for the right scenario where he can get away with it. Yeah. So why would their name be important? Exactly. It's not about no. the humanity of this person. Absolutely. Otherwise he would have gone through a phone book and picked a name. He didn't pick a name. He picked a person. And they were a Yes, and it's not even a personal no. thing. This is not a personal vendetta. This is not revenge. This is sexual gratification. Yep, he picked the pretty young girl who was 21. So there's still part of me that thinks maybe he really just never, even going through it all, just never learned their names because he just doesn't care. Okay. I know you disagree. It's, it's, I can it's, see the it's part of the power. <laughs> well, maybe it is, yeah. but it's an interesting psychological power play is, from him then, purposely muddling the names every time. It is. Interesting. Yep. Okay. So let's go back as he continues telling us about his attack on Catherine. And uh, then we started fighting because uh, bonds weren't very good. And so back and forth we fought. Uh, you and Catherine? Yeah, we fought. Uh, and I got the best of her and I thought she was going down and then I could hear some movement in the other room. So I went back and Kevin, uh, no, no, I thought she was going down and I went back to the other bedroom where Kevin was at and I tried to restrangle him at that time. And he jumped up, and we fought, and, uh, and he about at that time about shot me because he got the other my pistol that was in my shoulder here. I had my magnum in my shoulder, so and in really shoulder I, holster. Hmm? Did you have it in the shoulder holster? Yes, and I had the magnum in my shoulder holster. The other one was a 22. So we alluded to this before. He shot Kevin. 
he thought Kevin was down or killed, but Kevin's actually still alive. Yeah, so this is another failure. So he sort of makes sure to make the point that he shot him in the, in the head, um, you know, but again, Raider has to go back and talk about that, that he has two guns with him again. He has to make sure that he gets the bragging rights in this. You know, he has a magnum in, in the shoulder holster, ready for action kind of thing. You know, it's it's about that uh, strength over someone else because basically he's failed. So he's, he's starting to realise that trying to strangle someone is really, really hard, but he he will continue to try because he had this fantasy, he had this pattern planned out, bind, torture, kill, all of this. This was all part of the plan to go beautifully and it is really hard to kill people. And, you know, this is why he had the guns because last time he would have used them as well. So he made sure he had them. He's shot once and the guy's still alive. Well, let's go back and hear where he picks up. And we fought at that point in time, and uh, I thought it was going to go off. I jammed the gun, stuck my finger in, the, in there, jammed it. And uh, I think he thought that was the only gun I had because once I either bit his finger or hit him or something got away, and I used the 22 and shot him one more time. I've got to say... Yeah. For a renowned serial killer, this guy is pretty shit at killing people. Yeah, because it's messy. He doesn't realise that this is really hard. This is why burglars and things like that have guns with them because you can stand back and do it. You know, it's it, it's it's no skill to shoot a gun and you're more likely to kill someone that way than it is to strangle them. But it's just stupid luck, you know, and he just seems to think that, okay, once a person is unconscious, that that's it, they're dead. You know, but it's an, an important feature in his crimes because we see how he's going to learn he now makes sure that he has two guns with him and you know it's got to be the two guns and it's just really odd that um just just the way that he he thinks that these people sort of instantly die that you choke someone for a couple of seconds and they're dead like they're in the movies he should know because he does these strangulations of himself in these photos and stuff that we've seen that um, you can you can be revived many, many times and so strangling them for a very short time is not going to kill these mm. people. Let's go back. He shot Kevin twice now. Let's find out what happens next. And I thought he was down for good that time. All right, so you shot him a second time. Yes, sir. What happened then? Uh, went back to uh, uh, finish the job on Catherine. He's done it again. Yep. Stumbles over Catherine. Yeah. Has to look down at his notes. Yeah. And, you know, this is what um, a lot of people get wrong with serial killers and their victims. You know, we, we think that they sort of sit there and sort of go through their names and everything and sort of fantasise about who they are and read newspaper articles and stuff about them. You know, it's um, it's... By killing these people, they, they become part of their essence kind of thing. It's 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 a weird thing to try and describe. Um, you know, it's like a model maker sort of making, you know, tiny thousands of soldiers to, to, to put in, into their sort of set out of, of where they're going to kill in World of Warcraft and things like that. You know, it's, it's they're, they're subjects, they're insignificant pieces, they're, they're not a person. These are just sort of toys to play with and this is what he does. It's It creates a memory for him but he doesn't care about their names He's and, and it's a big screw you to them because he is refusing to do it and so any opportunity he gets he will uh, fumble over it to just say, yep, I don't care who you are. Mm. Well, he continues talking about his attack on Catherine. And uh, she was fighting. Uh, and at, at that point in time, I've been fighting her. And I just, and then I heard some, I don't know whether I uh, was basically losing control. The uh, strangulation wasn't working on her. 
and I uh, used a knife on her. You say you used a knife on yeah. her. Yes. What did you do with the knife? I stabbed her. I think she said either stabbed two or three times, uh, either here or here. Maybe two back here and one here, or maybe just two times back here. You were pointing to your lower back and your, your... Yeah, underneath the ribs. And your lower abdomen. Yeah, underneath the ribs. Up, up underneath the ribs. You know, we're talking about the lack of care about the victim and who they are as a person. He can't remember her name, but he knows exactly, point for point, how he killed her. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. Something I, I just thought of just then that I hadn't thought of before, he doesn't overkill. He, he isn't... He, this is just totally changing everything. He isn't killing these people to a point to know they're dead. He's doing them with the least amount of force. Ah, now this is interesting. We were literally just talking about the fact that he wasn't a great killer. But we do know some serial killers completely overkill. Yeah. We're not you know? seeing that here. Yeah, well, this is, uh, I mean, it doesn't change anything because it's all, all still the same, but it's... It, he, he fails at it, you know, and but three stab wounds, maybe two, maybe three. Um, you know, we know that most you, know, you won't die from, from three stab wounds very quickly because it takes a long time to bleed out. Um, you know, and we hear of people who stab like 110 times, 75 times and all, all of this. He does the least amount. So he's almost lazy with how he does. He sees them go down, he expects that they're dead and they're not. This is why he's failing. He's ob- he obviously doesn't have the strength or or the nous to, to continue. He just wants to do what needs to be done to get that fantasy happening. It's, but he could shoot them straight in the head and have them dead, right? So Yeah, but you can only kill them once. Well, <laughs> you can't only kill them once because we're seeing him kill them two or three times before they're actually dead. But this is my point. It, it almost seems like the dead death part of it isn't his objective in such a way. You know, the bind and torture seems to be what he's more excited about than the actual final result of death. Am I misreading this? No, 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 no. You're kind of on, on the right track. I mean, we're not hearing about any of the torture, which is something that fascinates me, that they haven't actually gone into that. He's BTK. Um, torturing them, I would expect there to be, you know, some sort of psychological damage, if, if not. We know that he said to the Otero children, your parents are dead and now you're going to go and meet them in heaven, you know, and there's some psychological torture like that. The way he killed um, Josephine was to hang her from the rafters in, in the basement purely so her feet could touch the ground but she couldn't save herself. So there's that sort of torture, but we're not actually seeing this. If he said, you know, I, I um, strangled them until they're unconscious, then brought them back and strangled them again and brought them back and strangled them, that would be torture, but he's not doing that. He's accidentally doing this and because he He's just killing them to the point of death. So the death is part of it, but and he he wants to see these females face to face, but it's not to a point of savagery. So he's not an angry killer. This is sexual um, fantasy that that that's happening. He he wants to have them scared of him. He wants that power. It's something that he obviously doesn't have in his daily life. I mean, so is it about power combined with sexual fantasy then? Yes, because. You know, you're talking about him as a middle-aged man who's a bit of a letdown when he's in court and you said he's short. Is this about him having a power 
over these people that he's torturing. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear that that, they, that he had abusive parents or something like that. I haven't done much into his background because we're, we're focusing on the confessions like we do on this channel. But um, there is something that has rendered him powerless in life and it seems to be that this his is his way to exalt that power once again. He's about um, having these people under his control. I decide if you live or die. Unfortunately, it's not working because mm. he's failing at it. But it's really interesting how he's doing this and that the fact that he does it only to the point of killing them, he's not going in with that savagery. This isn't a frenzy. There is no frenzy involved, which often happens with um, sexual serial killers, uh, that they go in. I mean, look at Bundy. He, he went and took three women in, in one place and, and tried several others and did things like bite them and basically tear at them. Whereas he's not doing that. So he's subduing them. He's then lying on top of them. He's then watching their faces as he kills them. So mm. there's that that's happening. The men are insignificant in this, but it's about this, but it's not overkill. So he's not losing control of himself. Yeah, okay. Look, just to give some background on what's happening in the video at this point, the angle has changed twice during the last section. It shows where Raider was pointing at his body. Then it returns to the face shot that Amanda talked about at the beginning of the podcast. But now it's zoomed out as he continues the narrative. So after you stabbed her, what happened? Uh, actually, I think at that point in time, well, it's a total mess because I didn't have control on it. Uh, she was bleeding. Uh, she went down. So he did lose control, well, he, but not anger, yeah. but he lost control of the situation. That's right, that's right. You know, so he shot Kevin twice, and in between those shots, you know, they, they've had a fight, so he has Kevin's blood on him, and, you know, then he's he's gone into Catherine and he's covered in blood, so she would be in more of a frenzy herself now, and then he has to stab her, so then she's got Catherine, he, then he's got Catherine's blood on her as well. You know, this isn't fun. You know, this is not the fun that he was expecting when he's been following her for weeks and stalking her and fantasizing about killing her it's not going to plan you know human behavior is unpredictable and the fight for survival is far too strong and a mm. lot of killers don't realize this with their early kills and this is why he had actually stalked her for quite a while he thought he'd chosen well this time because of the otero case where everything was out of control he then talks about that kevin after being shot twice in the face is still shockingly alive I think I just went back to check on Kevin or at that basically same time I heard him escape. It could be one of the two. But all of a sudden the front door of the house was open and he was gone. So he's gone. Raiders lost one of his potential victims. Yeah, I mean, you know... I I had no idea about about this guy because I'd looked in, into the killings and I had no idea that someone had survived at this point. I've done a lot more digging since then, you know, but this is the loss of control completely. So a victim has escaped. Regardless of what you've done, you have let someone escape. He has seen your face. He doesn't wear a mask or anything like that, you know. So you would think it's now about your own survival. It's about getting out of there. You know, Kevin, shot in the face twice, can still get up and run away, you know. And yeah, Raider must think it's all over. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Well, he did have a second thought, though. And, uh, or, oh, I'll tell you what I thought. I thought the police were coming at that time. I heard the door open. I thought, no, that's it. And I stepped out there, and he, I could see him running down the street. So I quickly cleaned up everything that I could and left. Okay. So he thought by then he'd killed six people. Kevin has survived and he's running off. 
Raider cleaned the scene and left. Tell me how he'd be feeling at this point. He knows he's done for, so he, he needs to try and escape as quickly as he can. But he's going around and picking up the bindings that he's left. There's tape around. There's his guns. He's sort of making sure that he has what he can to get away with it, you know, because he knows that Kevin's seen his face and Kevin's going straight to the police and bringing a whole cavalry back to the house and he needs to get out of there. And, like, we have to remember he's covered in blood. You know, he, he's done for. He really thought he was done for. Mm. Well, then the judge asks a question I'm sure we all want to know. All right, now, Mr. Rader, you indicated that at the Oteros you did not have a mask on. Did you have a mask on at the Brights? No, no, I didn't. So he hasn't learnt from his mistakes of the first scene. No. So he thought he was just going in to kill one woman this time. He didn't think there would be witnesses. He didn't expect that Kevin to be there. Kevin's the wild card in all of this. And with him escaping, even though he's been shot twice in the head, um, Raider would have also been pissed off. He would have felt terror. He would have been angry. He needs to escape. But he knows that, like, that the clock is ticking, you know, he is not going to get away with it. He has no idea that he is about to be free for the next 30 years, you know, but his best thoughts are they may not link the two scenes because the two scenes are are slightly different because this is a family and this is two young people, you know, and he would hope that that might be what would happen, that he might be sort of fingered for this one but he he would have a um an alibi because he often worked and and so he would sort of be out on the road and so no one could account for his time you know but he expected that the police would be there at any second but he should have had a mask with him absolutely so as you say now he knows his time is limited all right so what happened then uh i tried to, i had already had the keys to the cars uh and I thought I had the right key to the right car. I ran out to their car. I think it was a pickup out there. And I tried it. It didn't work. And uh, at that point in time, I was he was gone running down the street. I thought, yeah, I'm in trouble. So I tried it. It didn't work. So I just took off, ran, went down, went east, and then worked back toward the WSU campus where my car was parked. So he parked his car at the local university. He's likely covered in blood at this point. This is really risky behaviour. I'm starting to think it's dumb luck, just like Ridgeway, that he wasn't caught. I know, right? I was so shocked. I, I love coming into these fresh. This is a case that I've avoided for so long. And so doing it now, it's 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 thrilling. It's it's enticing. You know, but he's got blood on him. Yeah, he may have grabbed a jumper or a sweater or whatever you like to call them, you know, chucked it on. But he needed to leg it out of there. He needed to make sure that he he's not caught. He's um cursing at himself, no doubt. He, he knows that it's going to be any second that the police are going to come and knock on his door, you know. I, I can literally see it playing out in, in my head as he sort of, you know, does sort of a, a walk, run, try, trying to get away quickly. Um, he would probably used the back door instead of the front door, but he, he tried the cars. He expected to get away in the cars and he couldn't even make them work because he didn't know which keys were for which and all this sort of stuff. And mm. he's just trying to get out of there, covered in blood, knowing that a victim might be at the next house right now ringing police. Well, he's then asked by the judge to explain a little more about how he travelled from the bride home. All right, so you had parked your car at the Wichita State University yes, sir, campus. On the campus uh-huh. How far away were, uh, was the Bright's residence? Oh, I parked, uh, was that 13th? And they're, uh, let's see, they're, they were on 13th. Was it 17th? Yeah. Uh, I, was for, I was just about one block south of 17th where the car was. Uh, oh. there, there's a park there. I parked by that park. 
and then I walked to 13th to, to the Brights residence. So I basically ran back. All right, so you were able to get to your car and get away. Yes, sir. Isn't it interesting, in that part, he turns to his lawyer to get confirmation of the street, but doesn't even wait for an answer and approves his own response. Suddenly he's very sure. Yeah, so he has to look down repeatedly to know Catherine's name, but, you know, he knows exactly what street he's on, he knows exactly how far away he was, he knows exactly where he parked the car. All of his details that are in his control he knows very specifically. So, you know, it's quite interesting. But, um, you know, it's it's about him being the lone actor in all of this. This is the part that he does well. It's about him, it's not about anyone else. Who they are and what they did in, in their lives he didn't really care about. You know, it's just about... He's happy to be precise with what he did and his actions in all of this, not what the others did. So what happened to Kevin Bright? He's escaped. How come Radar wasn't fingered? Um, well, if you see the uh, sketch artist drawings that they did, um, he looks like uh, Jack Black. It's it's right. very it, the the images aren't even close to being right. So um, we actually go through through that a bit more in, in the next episode. But basically, I think Raider would have been cracking up when he saw the I- images that they had re- released of himself. But um, uh, Kevin knew that uh, once they had Raider, he he was able to say, "Yep, that's him." But you know, it would take thirty odd years to get to that point. Okay. Well, after killing Catherine Bright and attempting to murder Kevin Bright, Radar went to ground for nearly three years before he struck again. In our next episode, Radar is questioned about the murder of Shirley Relford in March 1977, as well as other features of his crimes. Amanda, I am really enjoying this case. Thank you for bringing it to us. I know that this has been a long-requested case and I'm so glad. I'm actually coming at this quite fresh because I haven't looked at the case in 100 years and and I had looked at just the killings and not the other um, elements involved. So it's really fascinating to look at this now. And as you can see, we can even evolve our, our profiles as we do this because other thoughts come to mind like we did with the underkill that he does. So it's, this is fascinating to me and I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. We have at least two more episodes to come. <laughs> Spoiler alert <laughs> and warning. Um, thank you very much, Amanda. Don't forget, if you want to support the podcast and get special bonus features, go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. We'll see you next week. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.